0: No, you so the, uh, All right. And today it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Angelos Karamesis uh, from the Department of Computer Science at Columbia University. Uh, Angelos is a system professor of computer science. Uh, at Columbia, and he received his master's and PhD from the University of Pennsylvania and his bachelor's degree from the University of Crete in Greece. Uh, his research interests include uh, network and system survivability, authorization and access control, and large scale system security. Uh, in a previous life, Angelus had enough time to contribute uh, code to the uh, OpenBSD project. So without further ado, I would have spi- Thank you, I would have spiced it up if I knew you were going to actually uh, read that, but anyway, this will do. Uh, so uh, thank you for coming at this fairly late hour uh, during the day. And uh, what I'm going to talk about today is um, some initial steps in our work to create self-healing software. And by self-healing, uh, I mean uh, a very ambitious vision of, of software that can identify failures of uh, many different kinds and automatically take steps to, uh, to correct them. So if you were here for the whole story of copying files back and forth, you know, that ideally 20 years from now when uh, we solve all the problems, uh, I'd like the, uh, the system to figure out what it is that I want to do and, and do it. But we're a long ways from that. So the summary of the talk, and you have to forgive me for the slides, not quite fitting here, but that was the problem that we're trying to deal with. Um, Was that we're trying basically to create software systems that heal themselves uh, against uh, failures, whether they are security attacks, whether they're bugs uh, due to program mistakes, with as little or or no, ideally, human uh, interaction. So if you're going to fall asleep for the rest of the talk, that's the message I want you to take away that, uh, you know, especially if you fall asleep, that these guys at Columbia really solved this problem. Um, you know, if you're awake, then uh, okay, you get to hear what we actually did. Um, and and so in doing so, we're really motivated in, by by the current situation in the uh, the realm of software security, uh, where basically the attackers hold all the advantages, which is um, they have the advantage of uh, uh, selecting the place and the time to strike, which is the traditional advantage in all conflicts in history. The attacker gets to choose where and when to attack. Well. Mostly where, when. Um, and also, they get to exploit large numbers of compromised systems to further enhance their attacks. Uh, and uh, also, to a large extent, they exploit the fact that we all run the same version of, of the same operating system or, or a fairly small number of, of uh, uh, operating systems and applications. And so, all they have to do is find one vulnerability and then they can write code that helps them automatically exploit that vulnerability in many millions uh, of instances of that same piece of software, whereas we, the good guys, uh, to the extent that we are the good guys, uh, can't really uh, or haven't figured out yet how to exploit automation to our benefit, at least to the same uh, extent. Um, of course, the this vision is very, very ambitious, and it raises several questions on whether it's even possible, and even if it is, uh, uh, in principle, feasible. Whether uh, it's practical, and then what are the trade-offs? Because, as everything uh, in computer science, we're giving away something in return for something else. Right? Computer science, all about engineering, making it somebody else's problem or hiding the problem somewhere else. Um, now, although I come from a security background, my uh, and and the work and some of the work specifically I'm going to talk about here. Uh, focuses on a very security-specific uh, uh, set of concerns. In fact, the scope of the project is much bigger than just security, as I said earlier. We really are trying to enable software to deal with all kinds of failures. And for now, I'm going to define failures are very low-level software faults, which when you see them, you know they happen. So when your Internet Explorer uh, crashes, you know that something bad happened, right? So you don't really, intuitively, you understand that this is a fault. Um, So that's the kind of failure that we're going to be looking at. And then uh, towards the end, I'm going to give you some sort of uh, blue sky uh, thoughts uh, as to where we can go with this. And remember, the focus is always on on software uh, in contrast with uh, other uh, work in this area of autonomic computing, as it's called, that uh, tries to abstract away uh, system components as black boxes and then try to move them around or reconfigure them and so on. We really are trying to... uh, peek into the software that somebody else wrote. All right. So the overview of this talk is I'm going to start by by scaring you witless uh, with the state of of software security um, by citing some statistics from CERT and and other uh, agencies, other um, uh, acronyms. And then I'm going to give a very quick overview of related work, um, uh, what's happening in in trying to protect against uh, various types of software vulnerabilities and software-based attacks. And then I'm going to present two, well, the motivation for our work, self-healing software, what what do I really mean by this? And uh, two particular techniques that we developed that enable us to address a large class of software failures, and those are called micro-speculation and error virtualization, very catchy names. Um, and then I'm going to talk about how we use those two techniques in two specific systems, the warm vaccine architecture, which as the name implies, is aimed at dealing with the problem of network worms specifically, and then uh, the stem system that uh, that's uh, addressed at uh, a larger class of uh, software type of faults. And finally, if I have time, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about uh, this new concept we've started working on, which is application communities. All right. And at any time, feel free to uh, to interrupt and ask questions. I may not answer them, but feel free to uh, to ask them anyway. Um, so, what's the state of of uh, of um, state of the union? Uh, basically, uh, you don't need me to tell you that we use uh, a lot of software, an increasing amounts of software, right? Every release of Microsoft Windows uh, or any operating system or any application just adds more code. So not only we inherit all the previous problems that that code had, we, uh, we get uh, the benefit of more uh, places where failures might occur, and we depend on this software increasingly. Right? So all sorts of systems uh, are moving away from pure hardware and mechanical relays and things like that to fully automated software control uh, infrastructures. Um, and uh, un- unfortunately, uh, even though we depend more and more on, on software and computing uh, artifacts, uh, the quality of the systems, in particular the quality of the code, hasn't really improved uh, uh, as much or, or at all for that matter. Uh, so th- what that means is that we uh, open ourselves increasingly to uh, being vulnerable to more uh, software vulnerabilities, so more software failures, whether they are uh, accidental uh, failures, program just crashed because the programmer didn't know what uh, they were uh, doing, or uh, there was some kind of, uh, of logical flaw that an attacker managed to exploit. So very, very brief example of what I mean, the kind of failure that I mean, buffer overflow attacks, um, it's probably beaten to death, but I'm going to very, very quickly go over it because the example I'm going to use it later. So you have the code on the left, uh, which is this hypothetical routine that has this uh, array called overflowed that hints as to what might happen to it uh, later on, statically defined uh, st- uh, fixed size, and then we use it unsafely to copy one string to this array. And what might happen here is on the top is the program stack. This is the standard model of an operating system, what a, what a, rather what a process looks like in its private address space, right, the program stack grows uh, lower and what happens when the caller, in fact, is on the stack, sorry about that, when the caller is on the stack, we have the stack frame for the caller that identifies where the caller needs to return, where, rather where, right, where the caller needs to return when that code finishes executing, where the return value needs to be placed, all the arguments, so overflow is going to be over there and so on and so forth, and when it turns calls uh, string copy, there's going to be another uh, another stack frame that's going to point to the corresponding information for, for string copy. Now, what the buffer overflow does is because string copy in particular doesn't check that uh, the input, uh, the, the source buffer, matches is, uh, is at most as big as the destination buffer, what might happen is string copy might continue overwriting past the end of the buffer and start overwriting control information that's on the stack, in particular in this case the return value, and more importantly, the return address. So that means when string copy gets to return, it's going to use information that was, in fact, contained on the source buffer. So if that is some kind of input that was received, for example, over the network, or that an attacker, a malicious entity somehow provided, then what the attacker managed to do was overwrite uh, control information that is used internally by the control logic of the program. And thus, the program gets to jump to a location that the, the attacker controls, so that location can in fact be uh, part of the input, and that input can contain instructions that are executable on that architecture, and thus the attacker gets to run their own piece of code. Once they manage to do that, you know they're they're home free. Basically, they uh, they get to compromise the that particular process they run with the same privileges as the process. They can download more code. They can do anything they want. All right. So this is the very basic idea of sort of the first instance, not the first, the most basic uh, instance of a buffer overflow attack. The only reason I mention it here is just to give you an idea of the kind of failures uh, we're talking about here. Um, All right, so what what happens is that, in fact, these uh, types of vulnerabilities are found increasingly in uh, modern software. So this is data provided by US-CERT, which is an organization that keeps track of vulnerabilities, attacks, and so on and so forth. And uh, they only published this data as of uh, the end of the third quarter of 2004. Uh, after that, they got too depressed and stopped publishing it. They said, OK, we're not going to bother with this. So this tracks the number of vulnerabilities, in, in of distinct vulnerabilities that were found in different uh, software packages, whether open source or Microsoft and so on. So you know they peaked in 2002 at about uh, a little over 4,000, 4,000 different vulnerabilities. And then they went down a little in 2003. 2004, unclear. Remember, this is up till including uh, third quarter of 2004. Um, Likewise, uh, the number of serious vulnerabilities that were discovered, that again, cert, post, and advisory saying, hey, you really need to pay attention, has has increased quite a bit since 2000, and uh, shows no signs of coming down. Uh, Monitoring the relevant mailing lists also, sort of empirical evidence shows that uh, those numbers are still at the same level. And uh, the actual incidents uh, are going up. We don't know about 2004. They stopped publishing. Uh, now, these numbers have to be taken with a grain of salt because there really is no difference from the point of view of counting at CERT uh, between an attack against a bank uh, uh, a financial institution with 100,000 machines, that's one incident, versus one attack against my laptop. Right? Uh, there are they're fundamentally different types of incidents, but they count them as... Uh, equivalent incidents. But anyway, that, that should give you some idea. And uh, the, um, what's interesting is that many of these, and in particular, many of the problems that are remotely exploitable um, uh, are, are software based vulnerabilities of the kind that I, the example that I gave you earlier, stack, uh, stack smashing attacks, buffer overflows, and other variants. Um, so, in particular, in 2003, 24, 25, depends how you, you count them of the 28 remotely exploitable vulnerabilities uh, were of the particular buffer overflow uh, kind and then 2004 similar statistics for the first three quarters. Uh, interestingly enough, the pace at which these attacks arrive has also increased uh, uh, quite a bit. Symantec compiles a, uh, a uh, inventory or a report every, uh, I think every half a year, every six months, uh, uh, publishing uh, the state of security or incidents as they see them they have a lot of monitoring posts around the internet and uh, uh, look at incidents and attacks and probes. So they found that, on average, there were about 10 new vulnerabilities ex- um, disclosed publicly in, uh, per day in the first half of 2005. And there were seven a day in 2004, just for a comparison. The average time it took uh, for an attacker to create an exploit that took advantage of a particular vulnerability was six days after the uh, vulnerability was announced. So, a vulnerability could have been announced by Microsoft saying, hey, we've released a new security uh, update, so please download it. And on average, within six days of that, uh, an attack would appear that would have reverse engineered the patch and created uh, a script that anybody could run and compromise machines that weren't, in fact, patched. Now, uh, you know, I keep beating on Microsoft, but open source software is in the same sort of boat. It's not appreciably uh, better. Um, and again, two thousand and four similar numbers, five point uh, eight days um, interesting uh, uh, sort of outliers in this uh, space. The witty worm, which appeared uh, middle of uh, two thousand and four, I think uh, appeared less than forty eight hours before the vulnerability announced some the way some people counted it was less than twenty four hours in fact, uh, and my doom uh, may have been the first zero day worm that is a worm that appeared. Without any warning whatsoever, we didn't even know there was a vulnerability in a particular piece of software there was no patch out uh, that Microsoft had posted that people could in principle download but instead the worm appeared and that was the first warning we got that uh, that that piece of software was vulnerable so clearly there's very little you can do uh, to react to such a uh, such a problem at least with traditional methods of waiting for Microsoft to post to post a patch uh, so what are the the countermeasures I'll go over them. Uh, take this uh, very quickly, take this very simple model of a, uh, of a network. You have an attacker on the upper side and a, uh, a defender on the lower side. So there are various places in this simple model where different kinds of defenses may be placed. And I basically categorize them in five different uh, spaces. The first is, beat on the software vendors to produce better software. Right? So this is, okay, let's step out of the box. Let's go to the, the people that create the, the buggy software that we run and get them to train their programmers or to use better tools or better testing techniques, whatever it is, better quality control, and give us better software. Uh, That works to some extent. Microsoft, for example, has gone through uh, quite a bit of uh, effort to uh, train the programmers. Uh, But we still have problems, and we know that uh, that can only go so far. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but uh, it's one uh, approach within the space of solutions Another approach is network-based protection. So we put firewalls, whether inside the core of the network operated by ISPs or near the uh, the defending site where we do things like filtering or uh, 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 signature-based filtering or uh, anomaly detection, things like that. So these work to some extent, uh, they work against some types of attacks, not very well against uh, things that exploit software specifically. And uh, certainly not very well against uh, uh, at least so far against uh, um, uh, against attacks that uh, well, that we haven't seen before. They may work reasonably well if once we have a signature of an attack, um, we then may have a host-based protection that is things that we push on the software, and these may include things like uh, hardware facilities like the no-execute bit on some of the recent. Uh, 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 Athlons and uh, and uh, Opterons, or I forget what they're called, the 64-bit architecture from AMD and Intel. Although even those, uh, there was recently a paper that showed how those can be bypassed. Uh, so you know, no uh, panacea. Uh, things like managed code where the code operates under the auspices of some kind of security policy. Uh, and uh, we monitor that, uh, we've defined that security policy in terms of the interaction of that code with the rest of the machine. So that might not prevent the code from being, the process from being compromised, but at least it prevents, it, from, uh, it prevents an attacker from compromising the rest of the machine. Uh, or um, things like compartmentalization, you run your web server uh, in one virtual machine, your web browser in another virtual machine, and so on. Again, same idea, somebody breaks in, at least they can not compromise the rest of the machine. Uh, we may have containment, which is, the, in some sense, the, the logical uh, complement of uh, network-based protection, which is try to push the protection near the attacker. And the idea here is that uh, when somebody attacks a machine, they take it over and then they use it as a springboard to attack other systems. So if we can detect that the machine has been compromised, uh, perhaps as it's been compromised, or... or because of behavior, its behavior after it has been compromised. For example, uh, outgoing TCP connections from a web server. There really isn't any good reason why that should be happening. So then we can use uh, containment or quarantining to keep to isolate that machine from the network until the administrator has a chance to uh, come around and, and fix it. Uh, and this is uh, one of the approaches that uh, Cisco's uh, self-healing networks or whatever it's called these days. Uh, that's one of the mechanisms that's that's used there. And uh, finally, we can have software-based protection, which means now go into the particular software that's running on the machine, and rather than build things around it, go inside it and, and put barriers and protective measures inside it. So um, there are many different kinds of mechanisms that offer different trade-offs in terms of performance, a need to access the source code, and uh, uh, effectiveness in stopping the attack and perhaps maintaining the service availability. And depending on what you want to do, uh, you use one or the other. So there are mechanisms that are very lightweight in terms of their performance impact on the service, but on the other hand, they catch a very limited set of attacks. And when they do catch them, all they do is they terminate the program rather than let it get compromised. There are more powerful techniques that can in fact ensure that the program continues running, which is a very valuable thing uh, if uh, if you're a, uh, a broker financial services uh, a firm or a, an e-commerce site uh, where you lose money if your web server isn't running, for example. Uh, but uh, the, the flip side of, of having this assurance is that uh, things may be running many, many times slower. Right? So it's, it's a very unpalatable uh, trade-off in many cases. Um, and then there are other techniques like uh, randomization of the source code, again, of the program, rather. So if a program does get compromised, the Uh, injected code is going to be operating in uh, in a hostile environment in a sense. It won't know how to access the services to interact with the environment that it needs to. So it's going to quickly uh, cause uh, the program to fail. Again this works against some kinds of attacks, uh, but it doesn't do much to keep the service running. So you need other infrastructure around it. And by far perhaps the most commonly used technique is patch management, which is simply wait for the vendor to issue a, a patch. Downloaded, maybe test it uh, before you download it, and then hope that everything works. The problem with that approach is that there's a long cycle in patch management from the time a vulnerability is <coughs> discovered by somebody, and then it's the vendor may be notified if we're lucky. Before an actual attack is created, then programmers have to put on the task, they need to create the fix, they need to post the patch, and uh, people need to download it. And the problem is exploits and vulnerabilities can be posted and used at any time in this cycle. And this cycle can take uh, at least several days, typically several week, weeks, many times several months, sometimes years. Right. So uh, when we're talking about attacks that appear within six days, uh, depending on this cycle is really not, uh, uh, is not a good way of doing business. Uh, worse yet, even if they did do things the right way, it turns out administrators are very reluctant to just blindly apply patches, mostly because they don't believe that they've been tested enough. Uh, so this shows the, the percentage of Apache web servers that were uh, patched in response to a disclosed vulnerability to OpenSSL, a cryptographic library that's typically used by all Apache server uh, implementations. So at, the time, at day zero, none of them were, uh, were vulnerable I'm sorry, none of them were, 100% were vulnerable, none of them were fixed. Uh, at uh, time zero, the uh, announcement and the patch were made available. Somebody said, hey, you need to fix it. And then some administrators actually fixed it. Uh, but uh, basically about 60% of all servers, a little over 60%, uh, stayed vulnerable. Then a worm actually appeared that exploited this vulnerability. So you'd think, well, this is a, a sure sign. You know, if I ever need to patch it, I'd better do it now because I'm going to get compromised. Well, it turns out the, the, the marginal uh, uh, sort of number of administrators was about 20%. So even long after a worm appeared, a clear exploit was out there, it was compromising machines, bringing them them down, 40% of the of the servers remained unpatched. You know, some would say, well, the administrators were lazy or they they didn't know or didn't care. In reality, what happens is there's this trade-off between uh, availability and security that many of these fixes and the patches uh, um, encompass. So you have to decide whether you're going to patch your uh, your Apache web server or your IIS server or whatever other service and hope that it works or you're going to delay until enough others have deployed it and you've heard from the grapevine that, okay, it seems to work fairly well. Right? And in fact, that is what, what's happening. Administrators don't want to be the first ones to adopt a patch. They want to wait for others to be the, their guinea pigs. And there are good, there's good reason for that. Microsoft posted some, uh, uh, a while back, a researcher from Microsoft, uh, did some uh, simple uh, accounting. And they found out that for every critical uh, patch, security patch that Microsoft issued the past four years, uh, they, tip, they often, in more than 50% of the time, they had to go back and reissue that patch, so it actually fi- not only fixed the problem, but didn't create more problems. Right? In 50% of the time, their, their patch created more problems. The latest patch that Microsoft released on uh, last Tuesday, uh, in fact, created a new uh, a, a, uh, uh, availability problem. It could cause systems to crash, some systems, depending on their configuration. Right? And Microsoft came out and said, oops, sorry, unroll it or don't apply it yet unless you know what you're doing. Um, and uh, And sometimes ten percent or five percent of the cases they actually had to issue it three times, so the uh, administrators actually uh, are perhaps to some extent uh, justified in being a little reluctant in in sort of being uh, the first to uh, to patch so why is it so so difficult? There are two levels at which this can be explained at the high level uh, basically. You know, we're trying to play catch up. The attackers have all the time in the world to come up with their exploit to create their worms to set things up and then boom they hit and they take full advantage of the speed of the networks and of the speed of the machines that we have and the monoculture software monoculture that's out there uh and you know we're left there sort of uh standing with uh, with a baseball bat, hoping that you know we swing it blindly in the in the dark and we hit something. It doesn't work very well. humans you know aren't very good at at that. Uh, swinging bats, as baseball shows. Uh, at, at the low level, uh, finding software bugs proactively is very difficult. We know that it it reduces to to undecidability, basically, or the halting problem. Right? We we can't do it. We can go to some uh, some ways towards it, but we can't uh, deal with it. And the reason for that is we're asking. Know, where is the bug in this program? So is there a way of formulating the question in a different way where, such that we can, take a, we can bypass this undecidability uh, problem? So an observation here is think about your complexity theory, what you've been taught uh, there. And you know, if you think about NP-hard problems, if you ask uh, you know, what is the solution to this problem, it's very difficult. You have to do an exhaustive search. On the other hand, if I give you a solution, definition of NP-hard problem is that you can, in polynomial time, verify that it's actually a correct solution to that particular problem. So it turns out there's an analogy here. If an attacker tells us or somebody tells us, hey, here's a vulnerability and uh, here's how to exploit it, you can just run the thing and test for yourself that in fact there is a vulnerability and it works as advertised. So the intuition here is why should we do the hard work, just let the attackers That have apparently all the the time in the world do all the hard work of finding the bug and writing an exploit and trying to exploit it and just catch them in the act of exploiting it. And that act is going to tell us all sorts of details about the particular vulnerability and perhaps guide us towards a solution. Now, when I say attacker here, I put this in an adversarial environment, but you can start thinking about well, I can perhaps replicate the conditions that lead to a general fault, that lead to my, soft, my web browser uh, crashing, and if I do analysis on that uh, uh, under those conditions, I'll ide- perhaps I'll identify uh, a fault. So we came up in this idea of self-healing systems, which is sort of what we'd like to achieve. And so at a very high level, we, have a, uh, we need to structure systems, our position is, we need to structure systems such that They have this closed feedback loop where you enable the system to self-monitor itself, uh, the software. And then in response to anomalous events, uh, such as an application crashing or a detected compromise of of that software, uh, there's a a step of uh, self-diagnosis, introspection. And that ideally would help us identify the fault, the nature of the fault, where it occurs, all the uh, relevant parameters that, uh, that allow an attacker to exploit it. And then there needs to be a component of the system that that creates possible fixes. And those fixes may be completely generic or they may be very specific to the particular vulnerability and even the particular parameters of the fault. And then uh, the system needs to be able to test the, those candidate fixes and select the one that seems to be uh, the most appropriate. And if that indeed can happen, we go ahead and deploy. So this is you know, the satellite photo Kind of view of of what a self healing of how a self healing system should behave, uh, without saying anything about what the system is or, or what it does, how it works. Uh, so another way of thinking about this is what the military calls the observe, orient, decide, act feedback uh, uh, loop, which is this idea that uh, uh, you you build again a a self monitoring or not mon- self monitoring you you build a an infrastructure that allows you to operate very quickly. In response to detected events, they put it in the context of uh, detecting enemy movement or enemy action and the idea is if you operate really quickly faster than uh, as they called inside the opponent's uh, reaction envelope, then you can outrun them and uh, not in the literal sense necessarily, but you can out decide them and then uh, you're going to win so there are several dimensions so if we can do the same thing here, then we can outrun the attackers or or even the the uh, accidental bugs, so there are many different dimensions of of what this self adaptation can look like. Uh, you can think of learning uh, patterns of input that we then filter and we stop at the boundary to the to the system um, or we we detect the system being compromised and we quarantine it or we restart it if it fails, or we do all sorts of other types of reconfiguration there's all these are within the scope of self-healing, self-adaptive systems, we decided to look at uh, what I call structural modifications, which is uh, uh, break into the software instead of treat a piece of program as a black box inside which we have no knowledge, uh, try to uh, pry it open with automated tools and try to to change it internally in response to detected faults. So the, the challenge here is how do we find, in, in many of the faults that, that I gave examples of, you know, it's fairly obvious what detecting the fault is fairly obvious. If the, the process stops running, then well, that's a, that's a fault. If it gets compromised and you've put the appropriate instrumentation, you can in fact detect that the buffer overflow is about to happen. There's many, uh, there's a lot of work in the research literature that tries to do exactly this. So the challenge here is not so much the detection, at least for the kind of faults that I've talked about, but in finding a generic uh, remediation strategy. What can you do that's going to be interesting, that's going to address a large class of these faults without having to go in and do sort of, if you see a string copy, convert it to a string and copy. If you see this, do that. Uh, this um, sort of template based uh, uh, fixing, which I- isn't scalable at all. Whoops, sorry about that. So, the, um, uh, what got us uh, thinking here was this idea of speculative execution. Which, at a very high level, includes you snapshot the program means you snapshot the program uh, state uh, at some point in time when you know the program is is in a good state, and then you execute the code. You let the web server handle a particular request, and if you notice that something bad happened, well, roll back. So pretend that uh, the server didn't ever do anything, and then pretend that the request never was, was never received, and let the server uh, re- restore it back to the known good state and let it run. Uh, the problem with that is that this works only if uh, the uh, input that leads to that particular fault, whether it's an attack or an accidental failure, happens rarely and it's not in your critical path. If your if your PowerPoint uh, or your Word crashes every time you type I, well, it's not really it, it doesn't do you any good if uh, you know uh, the program the the system pretends that the I button doesn't exist. Just not a satisfactory answer. Um, there's also all sorts of uh, side effects that now the operating system needs to keep track of. Uh, so what if the, the server touched the file or sent the packet out in the network while it was doing this work, and now you need to restore it back to its, uh, uh, its pristine state? Well, what happened to these changes? Some of those you could potentially keep track of, like the file system, and unroll those changes. But only if other processes haven't already touched the same data, otherwise it becomes too complicated. Uh, the things that you send out on the network, well, there's no way to recall them, right? If you've said something, there's no way to unsay it. Um, and and generally, it's a very heavyweight mechanism for doing generic recovery of uh, of programs when we're worried about sort of perhaps frequently occurring events such as an attack uh, might be. So uh, instead, what we do was we came up with this technique that I call micro-speculation. And the idea there is instead of treating the whole program as a black box and, and pretending and snapshotting that and recovering, instead treat just a piece of code that immediately contains the failure that you've noticed as a, a mini program that you need to snapshot and then recover from when that fails. So in particular, the, uh, the, the granularity at which we operate, we decided to operate, and it will become clear in a second why, is uh, a function, uh, a code function. And uh, uh, rather than use speculation at all times, because we don't know whether an attack might, whether a failure might, uh, might occur, instead we, or for the whole program, we identify the piece of code, the function that we need to speculatively execute based on previous observations of failure of that piece of code. So we wait until the program fails a couple of times. We find out that, well, it crashed when it was executing in this function. So now we're going to speculatively execute this function every time. All right. Uh, the nice thing about this is that there's very few state changes that we need to keep track of, and in particular, uh, in many cases, you don't even need uh, operating system support. I'll talk about two, two ways of implementing this uh, this trick. But if you do have operating system support, then you can speed it up quite a bit. Um, and of course, when a fault occurs, whether it's an attack or the application crashes or anything that we define as a fault, and so far I've let it, I've given examples, but I've left it unspecified as to what exactly a fault is. I'll keep it that way for a while longer. Uh, when a fault occurs, we undo the effects of the execution of that piece of code, and we take, down a, we take a different execution path. Well, okay, what, what kind of execution path could we take? So th- here's where the second technique comes in, which we call error virtualization. and The idea is, based on the, the function type, say it's a function that returns an integer or a pointer or what have you pick a return value that would typically signify an error code for that function. So uh, integer functions, you know, by convention, most people write them such that a minus one or a zero uh, sometimes is an error. And a function that returns a pointer, uh, you know, typically an error is a null. Right? So you can use such static heuristics. You can profile the application and find out what may be or do static analysis of the code or use hints of the programmer and sort of guess Uh, with some confidence uh, what may constitute valid error return values for a particular function. There may not be any, by the way. So now when we unroll the execution of a piece of code, we pretend that this function uh, uh, returned one of these uh, error codes by placing the appropriate value in the call stack and then returning control to the, the, the caller. And effectively what we're doing is we're catching a generic fault like a buffer overflow or the application crashed because it dereferenced an illegal memory location. And we stop the program from doing that, from uh, being, uh, being subverted or uh, uh, crashing or what, uh, whatever the effects of the fault are. And we, let, we convert this fault into an inline error code that we hope the caller is going to catch because the programmer uh, wrote defensive enough code to catch some kind of uh, error return from the, uh, the callee Right So this, as I say, smells a little like uh, uh, exception handling in, in Java perhaps, or other or C++, except it's not quite the same, because we don't require the programmer to have put this code in. In fact, we're trying to take advantage, to the extent that the, the programmer has done so, of the error handling code that is already in the program. So pff, is that going to work, yeah, right? Uh, So we run a few experiments. We took Apache, SSH, Dbind, and a couple of others I don't have here. We asked the questions, um, you know, how many functions are important, which means how many functions could we cause to fail, and by using micro-speculation and error virtualization, uh, uh, the program wouldn't be able to continue executing, right? So basically, we we run uh, standard benchmarks against some of these applications. We extracted the call graph the actual uh, functions that were active for the execution of these uh, benchmarks, and then used fault injection against individual functions one at a time. So in the case of Apache, there were 154 active functions against uh, when using Apache Bench or Web Bench. I forget which one. And then we created 154 instances of Apache in uh, each of of which uh, one function would consistently fail every time that we used it. And we pretended that it failed with some error code that we guessed using static heuristics, just based on the type of the the function. Nothing too fancy here. And we rerun the benchmark for each one of those. So it turns out that for 90% of the functions in Apache, you can do that. And Apache will keep running, will keep having the same behavior as it would have if the programmer had put code that said, oop, something bad happened here, and I'm going to recover from that. Surprising for Apache, in many of those cases, the web pages were actually served correctly. The benchmark completed correctly. Right? Very surprising. You threw, Basically, we threw away code from Apache, and it still uh, performed its, uh, its task. That tells you there's a lot of redundant code in there. Um, but it also tells us that, that there's a lot of code... That, or rather that programmers write defensive enough code but don't catch all possible exceptions that may occur right? such as buffer overflow. So if we can catch them somehow and we can convert them into these inline error return codes, then we, the, there's a high probability that the program is going to behave uh, uh, correctly. Well, for some confidence of correctly. So now of the 15 functions that, that caused the crash when we did this fault injection, uh, ten of them, in fact, were in the startup phase of the program. So, in fact, we should discount them because failures, because we don't really care about failures that occur there. They're not uh, affected directly by uh, by input from the network. So, um, you know, we'd never actually get to f- to fix software in those cases. But, you know, it, it's a matter of semantics. Uh, for SSHD and Bind, same type of statistics. Near to, Near 90% of the functions that were active, we could... Do fault injection, and they w- the program would keep running, and keep serving subsequent requests. Very surprising result. Um, so you know, the, again, this this points back to this I- idea of well-behavedness of of code, and that programmers may not be as as incompetent as as we've made them out to be. Um, and there's some independent work that confirms this hypothesis that I won't go into due to time. Uh, considerations, uh, but there's some work at OSDI last year and uh, at uh, microarchitecture last year or the year before that uh, that shows the, that software is in fact quite a bit elastic. Uh, you can abuse it in certain directions uh, along certain axes and it'll do it'll behave in nice ways, but you know if you abuse it in different ways it's going to crash. so getting back to how do we enable self healing software. Basically, the idea is think of the previous uh, sort of four-step uh, feedback loop. Now, what we need to do is put lightweight sensors around the uh, software that we need to make self-healing. Uh, and then, once we detect a failure, we need to have enough of of logic of a logic component that we can recognize the type of attack, which basically the sensor is going to tell us uh, uh, what it was, and also localize it in terms of where it happened in the code. And once that happens, we can use uh, micro speculation and error virtualization to apply a fix around that piece of code such that future uh, insta- instances of that failure in that piece of code are going to be treated according to what I've told you so far. And then this may lead to more than one possible fixes. And you know, we can test each one of those and see whether they work by feeding them uh, the, the input vector that caused the failure to begin with, and perhaps running some uh, regression testing, some functionality testing, and see what, what happens to it, if there are any side effects. If we're happy, we can go ahead and deploy it, or we can wait for the administrator to click the deploy, or there are all sorts of strategies. But in principle, this whole thing can happen automatically. So the first case study is what we call the worm vaccine that targeted the problem of network worms uh, using uh, buffer overflow attacks as I said, uh, proof of concept. Uh, we don't really care much about buffer overflows, but they're a nice uh, type of failure that people are interested in. And it has the other nice side effect that it's easily recognizable if you know what you're looking for. And uh, also the network servers are transactional in nature, so we can easily replay input to, to them and see what the impact of that input is. Right? So we're, we're creating an easy system to to, uh, to test. So basically we take a production server, We instrument the server in a separate uh, uh, environment, whether it's a virtual machine or a completely different system. And we put some uh, logic that does the identification of the fault and try to localize where the fault happened in terms of this routine. This is where it happened. right? This was the call trace. And create uh, instances of this test and so on and so forth. And now we have several possibilities as to how we actually trigger uh, this analysis. Uh, We can either wait for the attacker, I don't have a laser pointer, we can either wait for the attacker to directly attack the system, so this would be a uh, honeypot-like version of the system, or we can put some type of anomaly detection at the end host or at the firewall, the router, that creates hints or or suspicions that a particular request, a particular piece of traffic, sequence of packets, may be anomalous. We don't need to know for sure, we just need to create uh, suspicions. Right, and then we can test these suspicions in the uh, analysis environment. Uh, so, you know, the uh, going from the simple block diagrams to, you know, uh, once we fix it, we we update the production server if we fix it, of course. And you know, this is what the uh, full architecture uh, looks like. But you know, moving on. So, how do we create these sensors? How do we create this analysis environment? In this system, we use source to source code transformations uh, to. Uh, excuse me. To, uh, uh, we use source, source code to transformation to wrap all memory references, uh, all ac- accesses to buffers, that is, that could potentially be susceptible to buffer overflow, and uh, store enough information as the program runs to keep track of where it is executing at any given time. So when the program detects a buffer overflow, it emits all the information saying, hey, here's where I was executing, here's the buffer, here's the function, everything we need. And then we wait until an attack hits. Uh, one point here is that we can actually... Um, use any type of protection mechanism as an oracle, but uh, uh, we decided to use this approach because it's more efficient. So, you know, the example that I gave earlier gets transformed to, to this example. It doesn't really matter. It just keeps track. The, the parts of the code in red is what the system injects, and um, uh, basically it uses a technique similar to uh, electric to to wrap uh, buffers around memory protected with memory uh, with write-protected memory pages that are 0 fields, so overflows, underflow, underflows are going to create uh, exceptions. Okay, five minutes. And so on and so forth. You can go through the slides uh, later. Um, very simple technique. And the idea is that the same type of, of technique can be applied on the uh, as a fix, in this case, where we save the state of the program right where it says set jump before the piece of code that we know is vulnerable we detected in the past, string copy. And then if a fault does occur, we recover to it by skip execution. And in fact, in this case, the semantics are the same as if we, the programmer knew how to do array bounds checking. Oh. All right. So once we create such fixes, we test them uh, with all sorts of, uh, of uh, you know bad input, good input, all the things. And then if we're happy, we can deploy. Uh, does it work? Yep. We had eighty uh, uh, something uh, percent uh, success rate against known well to us vulnerabilities against real open source software that we put in the system we hit it, we hit it with it, created patches that actually addressed the problem and kept the application running as well and we could possibly do better. It took sixty seconds to do this for Apache, which is the biggest program that uh, that we had i 'll skip the performance because you know it works uh, here 's a system view of the um, of the uh, web-based uh, uh, front-end that, uh, that can control the system. So we have a number of systems here. And uh, we can launch an attack against them if we want. Uh, and uh, this shows what happens, the steps that the system goes through, uh, uh, you know, detect an attack, patch, generation, compile, test, pre-deploy. At pre-deploy, if the, system, if the configuration may be that stay here until the administrator says go ahead and deploy. Um, of course, a patch may fail. Uh, in the testing phase or the generation phase, and uh, this is what the patch looks like because we operate in uh, in uh, fully pre uh, processed uh, source code but you know if you look at the grayed out areas later on i 'll send the URL you can see that the fixes are similar to what I posted earlier with the red lines on the code uh, and you know database of all sorts of failures i 'll skip the observations because they 're fairly obvious and um, Now the problem with this is that it depends on on the the code that is compromised that is wrapped around uh, to not have any kind of failures, uh, not have any kind of external memory references. So instead, we want to keep track of all memory references and do real recover unroll as for the string copy or the piece of code that we've seen fail. Uh, And we'd like to operate in a binary only environment, not require access to the source code, as in this system. So we've built STEM, which stands for Selective Transactional Emulation, where we basically implement micro-speculation and error virtualization by, keeping, by emulating just parts of a program as it's executing, and the rest of the program runs on the native CPU. And for the part of the program that's executing, you keep track of memory changes, and if anything bad happens, we unroll it and uh, do error virtualization. Um, right. So otherwise, it's exactly the same technique as micro-speculation, as I said. I'll skip the example in the interest of time. STEM semantics, performance, yada yada. Performance, if you run the whole program under STEM, it's very, very slow. Uh, but if you run uh, uh, just a little bit of it, you may not uh, even notice it, depending on what part of the code you're you're uh, wrapping. For IO-heavy programs, you could, in fact, run the whole program, like SCP, uh, in the emulator, and you wouldn't see any performance degradation. But that's for a specific case of programs. and um, uh, so the idea, I'll very quickly say, of application communities is rather than have a separate copy of the application that is instrumented and used as an analysis engine for those failures, since we're all running the same piece of software uh, uh, across you know, 100,000 or 100 million different desktops, if some subset, large subset of us is willing to collaborate, why can we not each take a little bit of the task of monitoring for failures uh, in, say, in different parts of the code of the same program that we're all, all running, Ward. And then when, we, when any one of us notices is a failure, we just tell everybody, hey, here are the conditions that led to a fault. And now you can go ahead and create your own fixes, potentially. So this is the notion of an application community. And in fact, you can think of it as load balancing the task of monitoring for failures using real applications rather than a honeypot or, or doing instrumentation around the application yada, yada. Uh, So there are all sorts of interesting questions uh, in terms of uh, what's the overhead of having an application community versus the speed of detection of a fault versus accuracy, who you trust, what types of fixes can be generated, so on and so forth. It's all very interesting. And if you want to hear about them, um, there are a bunch of papers. I'm going to send the URL that are uh, appearing or are going to appear or have appeared. You can read, and you can feel free to send me email. And uh, the top URL uh, points to the project webpage. So that's all. Thank you. Let's thank our speaker. Thank you.